Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Randa Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking with two fabulous authors of a fascinating book titled Slavery, Capitalism and the Industrial Revolution, just released in 2023. I'm speaking with Professor Maxine Berg and Professor Pat Hudson, who follow the money to document the role that slavery played in the making of Britain's Industrial Revolution. This book packs massive punches. Um, It does incredible statistical work, qualitative work, figures out all sorts of things to help us understand the link between these two incredibly important forces in the economic, political, social, really all the history of the UK and beyond. So Maxine and Pat, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Miranda, and for your generous introduction. Before we dive into all the fascinating things of the book, however, would you mind introducing yourselves a little bit and giving us the backstory, why you decided to write this and why you decided to write it together? Um, Pat, do you want to start us off? Uh, right. Well, I'm a professor emeritus at Cardiff University in South Wales. Um, I spent most of my career researching different aspects of British industrialization in a global context often, but often also in a regional and local context. It's been the focus of my career, um, specializing particularly in the history of the wool textile sector uh, and also in financial institutions, which have also been uh, a long-term interest of mine. Uh, Maxine, I think you should introduce yourself and then I'll answer the first, address the first question. Um, okay, well, I'm Maxine Berg, and I'm a professor emeritus at the University of Warwick, um, where I taught for many years. And um, I have been very engaged in the whole initiative from the early stages in um, global history, the writing of global history, and... Um, conferences, workshops related to this. Uh, And, well, slavery was certainly a subject that um, I addressed as a topic in a whole range of topics that we did in studying the Industrial Revolution. I have, like Pat, have written for many years on aspects of the Industrial Revolution. Um, But it was one topic among many and often treated at the end of a series of topics. Um, It became more significant um, to me with my engagement in global history. And that was a subject addressed in lectures for undergraduates. It was a topic of um, workshops, um, etc., But um, it was really with the the protests over Edward Colston 
um, and bef well before that, the Black Lives Matter movement. But really, the crunch came um, in the initiative to write this book with the fall of that um, statue of Edward Colston and the debate that ensued over that, um, over the role of the slave trade in the making of Bristol and the making of the wider British economy um, that really sparked my perception that we really needed um, something for our students and something for the wider public to read on the economic impact of slavery on Britain. Um, for so long, it had been looked at as something of an American problem, not something about Britain. So I, it's something I could not do myself. I approached my old colleague, Pat Hudson. Um, we had written many years before together. We'd written an article on, um, on the Industrial Revolution together. And... I wondered if we could write an article together on this to um, to clarify these connections, to explore and clarify these connections, and also generate new research on this whole area. But that article very quickly became very long, and we had to make the decision whether to go for a book, and we did. So that was June 2020, we started this work. So it has been uh, an intensive but brief period over which we have um, um, done the research and written the book. I'll turn over to you, Pat. Uh, right, I mean, I couldn't agree more that we were fired to write the book by contemporary um, political movements uh, with which I, I personally anyway uh, and probably Maxine as well were entirely sympathetic um, and recognising that our profession in a way had let history down by uh, not uh, keeping up to date really and not pursuing new research uh, on slavery and its role in the economy. Um, there had been periods of debate um, earlier in the 20th century, um, but the later 20th century historiography of the Industrial Revolution in Britain had been very much dominated by uh, analyses that favoured internal factors, particularly the inventiveness of British entrepreneurs, the precocity of her commercial structures and commercial mindset, uh, the early relatively democratic polity, uh, all the sorts of um, rather praiseworthy and heroic aspects of economy and society in Britain that had given rise to the Industrial Revolution um, with relatively little attention paid to this rather ugly underbelly of Britain's role in the transportation of all the three million enslaved people across the Atlantic and their treatment thereafter over three centuries in the Caribbean and the North American colonies before 17, 
the 1770s. So this is something I'd love to ask you to tell us a bit about because I, I found reading the book, I was really quite surprised by just how much debate and commentary there was during the Industrial Revolution and just afterwards um, that very clearly linked slavery to the Industrial Revolution. But as you've just described to us, that is something we've been rediscovering in the last few years. So given the kind of sheer amount of commentary and debate, if nothing else, why was this so forgotten? Um, well, I think it was hard to accept that Britain's heroic story as the first industrial nation was partly based on slavery and the exploitation of enslaved people. Um, I think as well there was a wider neglect uh, in our field, uh, a wider neglect of global history until Maxine and other colleagues started to really centre this from the 1990s onwards and say that we have had, we've we've been too insular in the writing of our history. We really do need to look at the impact of global trade on British economy and West European economy as well, of course. Um, trade with Asia as well as the Americas. Um, going back to the 16th century, if not earlier. Uh, and also to look at the integration between Asian trade and Atlantic trade, which, of course, um, involved coming to terms with um, a very important uh, element of Britain's overseas trade, which was the trade in enslaved people and also the commodity trades that depended upon it. And these commodity trades weren't just... Um, a question of importing sugar and other colonial groceries, so-called, from the Caribbean and from the southern uh, part of the American colonies, but also importing Asian textiles because they were the key. Brightly coloured, print, printed Asian cottons were the key uh, to purchasing slaves on the African coast, um, together with uh, an array of other uh, commodities, but Asian textiles did dominate uh, what a lot of the West African uh, states um, and traders wished to purchase. Mm. Um, Very important to start bringing those together. Sorry, is there yes. more you'd like to say on that? Sorry, Miranda. Is there anything further you'd like to say on that before? Absolutely. I, th I think I think there is. I mean, why else did we uh, uh, ignore this for so long as historians? I think it's partly because it was uh, the history of um, slavery in the Caribbean colonies was really quite difficult to research for many years because the sources were so scattered and not brought together. And this this is really partly an answer to your first question about uh, why this was an opportune time to write the book. I mean, we have in the past decade or two um, been fortunate beneficiaries of the intensive activities of a small number of colleagues in gathering together and digitizing very important quantitative and qualitative information about both the uh, trade in enslaved peoples and also about Caribbean plantation agriculture and profits and profitability. So we've got the Legacies of British Slavery website, which covers uh, a lot of information that we've been very fortunate to use in our book. Uh, we've got Slave Voyages, which documents all recorded uh, slave voyages between Europe via Africa to the Americas carrying enslaved peoples. 
uh, over the course of three centuries. So we can really document how the trade ebbed and flowed, which um, particular European nations dominated at particular times, etc. And in addition to that, we also have more digitized material on the Industrial Revolution itself. So it's easier for us now to identify, uh, geographically speaking, where the main sources of dynamism lay. Uh, and of course, it's a traditional uh, understanding of the Industrial Revolution that it started and expanded in the Northwest textile regions and manufacturing regions alongside the Midlands uh, and, and the South Wales heavy industries. Um, but uh, we can get a much better indication now from occupational data collected by the Cambridge Group um, of, you know, the timing and nature and geographical specificity of uh, expansion of these different industries and link them to Atlantic trade, which was underpinned by the slave trade. Mm. Very important, I think, to think about, obviously, the methodological challenges. So thank you for bringing that in. I'd love to um, ask in a bit more detail about, as you said, one of those colonial groceries, um, sugar, sugar being such a key part of this and something I've always personally been fascinated by. We, we think about in the sort of Tudor period, sugar sweetness being very much wanted, but very much a high class royal sort of commodity. And then, of course, we fast forward a few centuries and everyone has sugar all the time in their tea multiple times a day. Obviously, there's quite a change there. So, Maxine, maybe you could start us off helping us understand how sugar became an everyday commodity, not just a luxury good. Yes, well, this um, subject um, takes us into um, also the new areas of history writing, which informed our work. Uh, Pat mentioned the, um, the significance of um, the turn to global history, the turn to interest in wider international trade um, as much more important features of the Industrial Revolution than previous earlier generations had discussed. But one of those subject areas was in the, um, which also shifted things, was in the uh, all the work that was done on the history of consumption. And the there was significant work done in the um, the period of the 1990s into the 2000s on the trade in colonial groceries. And one of the most, well, the most significant of these colonial groceries alongside tea was sugar. And um, now this is a, it's um it's one of those range. It's one of the, that group of addictive luxury goods. They were, these were luxury goods in the 15th century. Sugar traded in, um, brought from Syria into the Mediterranean, um, uh, planta types of plantations, but not in the same way, set up on Caribbean islands such as um, uh, from Cyprus onwards. But this is a small, very small scale production for elite consumers. Uh, but that 
that um, the that period in establishing the cultivation of this cane sugar and its uses in elite consumption is something that grows and that um, production spreads down to um, islands off the African coast and soon there is a direct connection to Brazil. Um, so we get the spread of that plantation crop into first it's first Brazil and then into these Caribbean islands and it's cultivated on a plantation system. There is not enough, well, very quickly, um, indigenous labor is um, killed off, it dies off. Uh, there's not enough labor for this. And um, there is a new exploitation of a pre-existing slave trade that existed along that African coast, the Portuguese engaged in that slave trade, but now um, fed into this plantation system. And the production um, grows exponentially. There's, in the 17th and 18th centuries, um, especially from the, the last half of the 17th century, we see a rapid, rapid um, increase in the production of sugar um, it's, uh, the price falls, it becomes more integrated into the foodways of, uh, first middle-class people and then on to laboring class, even down to laboring class people. And it's extraordinary. There is in Britain a massive increase in the consumption of sugar from between seven and eight pounds a head in the early years of the 18th century, up to over 24 pounds a head by the later years of the 18th century. That's an extraordinary increase. It doesn't mean that everybody was consuming that much sugar because it's an average, but still an extraordinary domestic um, consumption of sugar and one that was spread right across the country. Um, now, that contrasted significantly with other parts of Europe, where sugar consumption also increased dramatically, but the British consumed far more sugar than their European neighbors. Um, now, how did sugar become an everyday commodity? Well, this is a wider story of changes in both consumer and material cultures um, over the period. Uh, sugar used in elite displays of sugar sculptures um, give way to sugar used by many people um, every day, uh, when they were drinking their tea, they invariably drank it with sugar. And so we see that huge transformation from a high elite consumer good into an everyday commodity. Um, and what it also displays is the close linkage between that 
East India um, Company escalation of the trade in tea um, with China, the tea trade with China, and then the development of a uh, new tea um, industry in India at the end of the 18th century, the into the early 19th century. But the integration of that with this um, um, West Indian plantation uh, production of sugar. I think I'll just stop there for the moment and see if there are other points you would like me to pursue or if Pat has other points to add. Pat, is there anything you'd like to add? I think the main thing I'd like to add is to um, emphasize that um, one of the reasons why uh, the sugar trade, the British sugar trade from the Caribbean was so successful, um, aside from the fact that the taste for sugar uh, in British culture um, seemed to expand so rapidly, is that the domestic market for sugar was a monopoly market uh, reserved only for British traders. Um, there was also additional markets, of course, in uh, in the North American colonies for the Caribbean sugar that again was dominated through the Navigation Acts uh, by uh, before the 1780s anyway, uh, by British traders. But um, sugar was, um, you know, the whole market was a market entirely for British traders and it was the fastest growing market in Europe. Could I just add on that, that the... Throughout this whole period, the British paid higher prices for their sugar than did the French um, because of this monopoly. Uh, so despite the, you know, there was knowledge that this was the case, but that monopoly existed and um, the addictive pull of sugar, such as it was, um, still we see that that rapidly growing consumption of sugar. It also became deeply embedded in the whole material culture of sociability through the 18th century that affected not only the elite and middle classes, but even the laboring poor. Offering somebody a cup of tea with sugar in it just became something that was the sociable thing to do when you encountered, um, when you you met and um, encountered other others, uh, there's a whole material culture that develops over the period um, of the 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 tea table, all the ceramics that surrounded the um, the consumption of uh, sugar pastries and biscuits and all manner of goods that sugar went into, as well as the tea itself. Uh, so there is a whole social aspect of this consumption that we see developing very rapidly, especially in Britain and the her, nor, um, her American colonies. No, absolutely fascinating. Thank you both for... There is also the point, Miranda, that... Um, uh, sugar amongst the lower classes was often an easy way of getting calories and energy um, in the absence of perhaps the finance to buy to buy 
the raw materials for a proper meal. And so there, there is evidence, um, I mean, sugar was served up in workhouses, for example, uh, and there is evidence that in from domestic budgets that sugar was often used to stave off hunger, uh, to create energy amongst workers uh, in an easy and cheap manner, despite its price, because it could be substituted for uh, a meal. Yes. No, a very important aspect and one that in some ways, we still sometimes see today um, with certain connotations in the UK around kind of very heavily steeped and very sugary tea and who drinks those things. Um, so thank you both for explaining kind of that jump from it being a luxury good to being so incredibly prevalent. Um, in a similar sort of please help us understand a thing way, um, one complication, of course, in understanding the impact of slavery on the Industrial Revolution and vice versa is of course that slavery, that the trade in slaves is in fact um, abolished, slavery is abolished, but those things don't quite happen together. Um, and there's a whole bunch of complications in terms of figuring out the kind of cause and effect, given that at some point the slave trade does actually end. But as you demonstrate in the book, the British economy doesn't stop benefiting from slavery even after this point. What does that look like? Maybe, Pat, you can start us off? I will. Um, well, first of all, even though the um, the slave trade itself, the British slave trade, uh, was abolished in 1807, uh, the trade in enslaved people between British colonies uh, in the Caribbean um, proceeded apace, partly because the, the new colonies on the um, South American mainland coast that were captured... Uh, at various times during the late decades of the 18th century and during the Napoleonic War period, um, became a new sugar frontier. So although Jamaica and some of the older uh, sugar islands, although they were extremely wealthy, prodigiously wealthy places by this time, uh, their economies weren't such a guaranteed source of wealth by the very end of the 18th century, but the sugar frontier moved to some of these newly captured colonies, um, which were cleared for sugar planting, which attracted a huge amount of investment from people in Britain with surplus money in the 1790s and the early decades of the, of the 20th century. So there is a tendency, I think it's, well, uh, to, to see the sugar economies and the and the plantation economies of the Caribbean becoming much less valuable to the British economy um, after, say, well, even as early as the after the American Revolution, but um, there's much more evidence now to show the continued profitability of um, Britain's plantations in the Atlantic. Uh, after that time and through in right up to the ending of slavery in British territories in the 1830s, there were still people making their fortunes, investors making profits from their investments, people making profits from their uh, plantations that they owned um, in the new sugar frontier islands and parts of the um, South American mainland, the, the parts that bec later became British Guyana. Uh, right through until the the 1830s. And remember uh, that when British slavery was abolished, um, 800,000 um, British-owned enslaved people uh, were freed. That freedom came 
very gradually because they often had to uh, work uh, on a so-called apprenticeship basis with their former owners for a further between four and six years, uh, which was regarded as a part of the compensation paid to owners that they wouldn't immediately lose their labour. Um, and this was also obviously at the expense of these formerly enslaved people. Um, uh, and also, when you look at the compensation paid directly to owners for their uh, ownership of uh, the loss of their labour force, if you like, um, in the 1830s, um, the way in which the value of each slave was calculated meant that each slave was compensated more highly in the new sugar frontier places of the Caribbean than it was in some of the older islands where labor was no longer, where enslaved labor was no longer so profitable. So, um, you know, the compensation was paid on a valuation of the loss of future earnings of specific, of slaves in specific colonies. Um, and I do think that this, as much as anything else, highlights how profitable slavery still was uh, in the plantation context. Um, but even after 1833, uh, British investors continued to benefit from chattel slavery as practiced in other parts um, of South America and in Cuba um, uh, and in the southern states of the USA, of course, uh, by investing in plantations, in mines um, uh, in South America that, that um, were... Uh, exploited using enslaved chattel labour still. So it didn't stop British investors benefiting from slavery even after uh, slavery in the British territories were was abolished. Mm. Um, additionally, I, I do think that um, there is a sort of um, a continuation of the use, well, there, there certainly is a continuation of the use of race-based coerced labour in plantations that are established by Britain in the 19th century empire um, in Asia um, and uh, in India in especially, um, which follows a sort of similar pattern. It's not chattel slavery, but it's the, it's the exploitation of race-based uh, coerced labor to extract valuable primary products for, the, as it were, the mother country. Um, and even the I, the institutions and uh, the uh, financial institutions that enabled overseas invest investments in such projects were pioneered, if you like, by uh, the Caribbean colonial project, um, and it was transferred then along with the institution of the plantation and the use of plantation labour into other parts of the empire as they expanded in the nineteenth century. So if you, lose, if you use the term slavery more loosely to apply not just to chattel slavery, but to other forms of coerced labor, which could be almost as bad, um, you can see that there's a continuation of the benefits that the British economy derived from the use of this type of, uh, of labor. Which is um, incredibly important. Maxine, please jump in. I just add in there, um, one very important sector of the British economy through the whole period of slavery and continuing um, right through the 19th century and into the 20th century is its shipping sector. 
and so much of that um that sh- the great expansion of that shipping in the 18th century was connected with the expansion of the Atlantic world and an, an Atlantic world um, based in those plantation colonies. Um, and there is also a lot, you know, evidence that many of those ships that were involved as um, slave um, slaving ships, they are simply transformed into ships that are, um, and the shipping, um, the shipping companies connected with those um, to ships which are um, bringing indentured labor to those new um, plantations being developed. Um, by Britain in other colonies in the 19th century. Hmm. Now, absolutely key in continuing the idea um, that the benefits to the economy happen after the abolition. In fact, on that point of the plantation spreading um, beyond where we might traditionally think of as the kind of Caribbean and the American South, uh, you talk about in the book that plantation innovation is not sufficiently understood, that the, the kind of range of it, the size of it, is not sufficiently understood in existing, pre-existing, before this book, calculations to understand kind of how big an impact this has on the economy. So Maxine, maybe you could tell us a bit more about what we need to better understand about innovation in and around plantations. Yes, well, I have to confess, this was a surprise to me. I had read um, in much literature and indeed there was a whole strand of the... um, the historical writing on um, the slave on um, slave plantations that they were almost um, akin to feudal. Um, they were ba- um, economies that they were backward. They were uh, they 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 were not the 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 for anything that you would look to to connect with um, the engines of economic uh, change, economic growth, anything like that. But in in reading, um, as you know, the deeper reading I did for this uh, for writing this book, uh, there's where we see um, a kind of separation from the intensive work that many British economic historians have done on the agricultural revolution. But the plantations are never considered in looking at that. And one can raise the question, why aren't the plantations part of the agricultural revolution? Um, They were discussed in this way at the time in the 18th century. And then you go to look at what was happening on these plantations um, and we see there this um, these huge enterprises. They there's uh, there's much lit- there is has been of course much written on the um, the large scale of the plantations, the division of labor on them, the that the division and the specialization of labor, the um, 
very programmed way in which labor was deployed across the plantations. But much of this work focuses on the actual practice of the, um, the cultivation of the canes and the, the harvesting of the canes, but not on the processing and refining, which also took place uh, at least up to very, um, a number of, uh, at least the lower stages, but also some beyond that. This also took place on the plantations. They were industrial enterprises as well as agricultural enterprises. And there's both extensive um, specialization of tools and agricultural in instruments, um, a specialization carried out in British ironworks, such as Crowley's, the famous Crowley's ironworks in the northeast of England, very specialized tools for this um, plantation agriculture, but also the creation of all sorts of specialized engineering parts for those industrial enterprises in refining um, the early processing and the refining of the sugar and also the distilleries that were, um, were established in a number many of these plantations. So there was a close linkage um, between uh, the demand in the plantations for these highly specialized tools and engineering parts and innovation that we have happening in the ironworks and the engineering works that we have um, in Britain. Not only that, we see um, innov many innovations, many um, applications for projects and patents for refinements, um, improvements in sugar refining um, processes, uh, sugar refining taking place both in the plantations, on the plantations, and in Britain itself, which had many, many sugar refineries all over the country. Uh, so there's, you know, very close um, uh, connections there. We have a whole sector of technological innovation that we rarely discuss in our histories of British agriculture or histories of British technological innovation. And one of the reasons this book is so incredibly helpful Pat, is there anything you'd like to add on this particular point? Uh, well, I'd like to just make a mention of the incredibly important work done by Nula de Zahedia on the copper industry and how uh, innovation in the copper industry was certainly promoted by the demand for copper stills and vessels for boiling sugar out uh, in the Caribbean colonies and in their processing plants. Um, and the other thing that perhaps uh, should be emphasised is uh, important work that's been done on the history of accounting. Um, because many of the plantation owners um, were absentees, partly because of the inclement and, and difficult weather and diseased environment of the Caribbean, many plantation owners chose to return to England and 
um, leave their plantations and their refineries in the hands of uh, attorneys or um, uh, managers. Uh, these managers had to develop forms of accounting um, that covered the use of fixed capital equipment uh, and labour in more detailed ways uh, in order to report once, twice, three times a year, perhaps more often, to their uh, employers. And uh, looking at plantation uh, accounting books, um, it has been shown that uh, s several innovations in accounting were made in this type of context. Um, and it's not only that, the, the managerial structures are very, very interesting in these, um, in these plantation economies. It's here that you see um, the precocious development of what they, we call the M-form firm with multiple hierarchies of management um, spread over, um, uh, oh, up to, th you know, 12, 13 different levels of, of hierarchies. Um, and the whole firm structure is much is is developed very um, uh, very much earlier than we see in the um, the development in British industry. Hmm. In fact, uh, I'm going to ask you both a little bit later to tell us about kind of the impact of all of this on the finance industry more broadly. Um, and I think there's already some information here that kind of suggests another area in history that we may not have understood the full impacts of. Um, but before we get to that point, I wonder if, Pat, you could maybe um, tell us a bit about sort of, I guess what sounds like a really specific English geography question, but very much has implications much beyond that. Um, you describe in the book that obviously the development of coal fields, and as you've just mentioned, the development of mining more broadly than just coal, is obviously a huge part of um, Britain's Industrial Revolution. But that doesn't happen to the whole country equally. There's coal kind of in a bunch of different places in Britain, um, but it's specifically Lancashire and Yorkshire's coal fields, not, for example, Northumberland's or South Wales, that um, really see kind of not just the investment of coal mines, but also really the creation of the massive textile industry we've been talking a little bit about. Why was it that it was in Lancashire and Yorkshire that this happened? Um, well, as you've hinted, the traditional explanation has uh, tended to be that as steam power, and by the way, that was another thing we missed really from your last question, uh, a lot of steam engines were exported to the plantations. Uh, I think over 130 were, ex were exported in a very short period in the 1790s, very early uh, uh, 18th century. So that was a, a whole the pole power area of plantations. But uh, coming back to the domestic economy, um, the, the argument uh, traditionally has been that as steam power overtook water power in some sort of linear development uh, uh, that um, comprised the Industrial Revolution, that coal fields became more important. Uh, but that does leave us with the question, as you said, uh, which, which coal fields become more important? And here, I think it has to. We have to refocus on both the importation of raw materials in the case of the textile industry in particular, 
uh, and the the um, the ports of export of manufactured goods. So remember that Liverpool became the premier slave trading port uh, of the late 18th century, the premier port not just in Britain but also in Europe. Um, and it it did pioneer, therefore, the importation as well of um, a lot of the products from the Caribbean, uh, which included um, Caribbean cotton. And uh, one thing that set the British textile industry, industry apart from its uh, French rivals, for example, is the heavy use, particularly in the northwest, where it became available through the port of Liverpool and the um, cotton exchanges of Manchester eventually, the very heavy use of this Caribbean rather than Levantine cotton. And Caribbean cotton, as developed in a particular strain called Barbadense, uh, which was partly developed by Amerindians initially on the South American mainland, was transferred to the Caribbean, in various uh, ways, it was also eventually um, uh, uh, transferred to parts of the southern states, although by the time the southern states became an important uh, supplier of cotton for British textile mills, um, technical innovation had made possible the use of coarser cottons. But in the 18th century, um, in Lancashire, something like 80% by the end of the 18th century of the raw cotton used was Barbadense cotton from the Caribbean or from Brazil, but particularly from the British-owned Caribbean colonies. Now, this gave South Lancashire a major advantage because it was a long staple soft cotton, particularly amenable to dyeing new patterns and into the wool and checks and stripes, but also eventually in the mechanization of spinning. And we go into this to some degree in the book, uh, emphasizing that the uh, success, if you like, of South Lancashire and indeed Yorkshire, because Yorkshire, although it's more dominated uh, the textile sector by wool textile production, worsteds and woolens, um, Yorkshire benefits also from the proximity as canals are developed uh, and road transport improves from the proximity of the major British port of export across the Atlantic to the Ameri the populous and prosperous former American colonies, now the United States, who had the wherewithal and the profitability, partly from their slave economies, but partly also from the dynamic of the northern colonies' own expansion. They had the wherewithal, the purchasing power to buy British manufactured goods, and they and this becomes the fastest growing source of demand for British manufacturers of all kinds, but including textiles, uh, for half a century, uh, taking over from Europe in size and dynamism. Um, and uh, so the development of the Manchester uh, uh, merchant traders who specialise in in um, advertising and in um, uh, Pro, uh, promoting sales of uh, an array of textiles in North America in particular to the in the Caribbean to a much lesser extent but eventually also into South America um, these become you know the successful heartlands of the British export oriented um, textile sector for all sorts of textiles cotton woolens worsteds and to a lesser extent um, even silk 
Um, although London keeps its um, uh, priority, really, I suppose, it keeps the silk, the silk industry um, dynamism. Um, so for a time, then, we can see a geographical reorientation of the British economy in the favour in favour of the North and West, and this is long before steam power becomes the major source of, of uh, multi-power for textile mills. Um, this is when uh, water power is still the dominant form of power. So it's it's before we can really talk about, um, you know, a, a coal-based geographical um, explanation for industrial location. Uh, I mean, coal was, of course, used for dyeing and uh, for, you know, processes that involved heat. Um, before it was used as a source of motive power through steam engines. Um, but even that, uh, if you look at, at the geographical distribution of um, textile manufacture in the Northwest in the 18th century, you know, it can't be explained by just by proximity to, to coal fields alone. It has to be explained by proximity to the commercial activities and the, the institutions of commerce. Uh, the mercantile experience um, and the financial institutions that have developed as a result partly of the slave trade in uh, Liverpool and uh, the environs. We could also talk in the same way about Glasgow um, and the development of cotton textiles uh, in inland from the part of Glasgow uh, in the uh, slightly late, it's just you know a decade or so later. Um, this is uh, a similar story of the location of um, textile manufacture being di dictated largely by uh, the access via uh, the mercantile um, class, uh, the access through the main uh, Atlantic ports of Liverpool and Glasgow uh, to the, um, the most dynamic, fastest growing uh, and most varied uh, sources of demand for new sorts of textiles, which again feeds back into uh, the technological innovation and the product innovation of the sector, making Lancashire, um, you know, giving Lancashire the edge when it comes to trading in Europe as well. Um, could I just add there that uh, coal was not just eventually used um, in powering steam engines for the textile industry. Um, we also have to look to its use um, and in a much early, earlier period through the 18th century in metal processing, in iron processing, in the copper industry. And perhaps, Pat, you could um, elaborate more about um, the role of South Wales. If we look at the West Midlands, this um, this is a really important factor, but the markets of the West Midlands for all those products, um, those metal products, the markets it was looking to were Atlantic markets. Uh, well, yes, indeed. I mean, coal coal is an extremely important factor, um, but uh, if we try if we're trying to look at the re reorientation of the British economy in favour of the North and West and indeed the Midlands. You know, as you're implying, we have to look at markets um, and the institutions, the commercial institutions that focus those markets through particular port cities, um, which in turn were to some extent a legacy 
of the slave trade because that had pioneered uh, aspects of long-distance trade and the development of banking and financial institutions, the use of the bill of exchange. All these things oiled the wheels of commerce um, as you leave the era of the um, legal British slave trade behind. Uh, those institutions survived to underpin the development of these same regions. Now, you might say, well, why wasn't the uh, metal, why weren't the metal manufacturers of the Midlands exported more through Bristol? Uh, but remember that Bristol had seen its heyday in the slave trade in the early part of the 18th century. Um, it, you know, it, 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 it fell away fairly steeply from the mid century onwards. Um, and uh, Bristol became um, certainly a, a port for the importation. It specialised in the importation of sugar and various other colonial groceries uh, and in developing internal markets for these goods. Um, but it wasn't, in the, it wasn't an attractive port for the exportation of Midlands manufacturers across the Atlantic to the United States markets. Um, it didn't become in, that, in the same way as Liverpool. And I think it's partly a question of timing. It's partly a question of on entrepreneurial activity, mercantile activity, um, and the buildup of specialist institutions that chose to uh, focus on, uh, for example, sugar refining, tobacco processing, those sorts of, of the agricultural goods, um, uh, rather than it, the exportation of textile manufacturers and other manufacturers. So now that we have this better picture of the plantation innovations happening um, elsewhere, essentially not in Britain itself, but also now the innovations um, and developments happening within Britain, um, I'd love to now ask about kind of what we've hinted at a little bit, um, how the slave trade and the many related sectors of the economy that you've just been telling us about influenced the development of both public and private financial institutions and practices? Well, this is a big question, which one could write a book on very easily. Um, if we focus on the private finance first, it's interesting to note that, um, for example, the development of long-distance investment institutions, uh, including the mortgage market, was really pioneered by uh, the expansion of a state ownership across the Atlantic. You know, safe ways had to be found to invest money through intermediaries uh, in these plantation projects, not just by the owners, but by their colleagues who wanted a share of the profits by loaning money, uh, by, you know, the collateral that was needed to be pledged against those loans, etc., etc. So long before the, the mortgage market in land internally, uh, uh, well, no, l let me revise that. Uh, I would say that the the Caribbean the if impact of the Car of Caribbean plantations on the mortgage market was equally, if not more, important in its impact on institutions than the development of the mortgage market in uh, landed estates and agricultural estates in internally, uh, which which did become important by the late eighteenth century in uh, raising uh, money for industry, for example, the mortgage market. To mortgage land was one of the ways in which entrepreneurs uh, accumulated uh, capital for industrial investment. Um, but I think that um, 
the the development of the mortgage market and mortgage institutions was something that was very much um, promoted by investment overseas and the need to keep those investments relatively safe. Um, and the same could be said about the development of the insurance industry, particularly marine insurance, but also fire insurance, the importation of sugar and cotton um, and their storage in warehouses in the uh, in Britain uh, became the greatest sources of uh, major fires in urban environments and in port cities. Uh, and um, fire insurance developed partly, in fact, one of the bigger in fire insurance firms was established solely uh, to cover sugar refineries. Uh, they were a major source of loss. Um, so that was an element that was uh, influenced, as was marine insurance, which is often more emphasised than the development of fire insurance as a result of Caribbean trade. Um, this was, as Maxine intimated earlier, a major area of Britain's shipping. Um, and, uh, you know, a cargo of enslaved peoples was a very, very valuable cargo. Um, and investors in slave uh, in the voyages of um, slave traders, uh, not just the slave traders themselves, but the many people that they encouraged to invest in each voyage along with themselves, uh, they all had to have, uh, you know, uh, some um, security of their investment, or greater security. And the development of the marine insurance industry was one way in which that was uh, that happened at a local level often, but also the development of the bigger marine insurance institutions such as Lloyd's uh, and um, the bigger insurance companies based in London um, were al almost certainly responsible, I think, for maybe 50% of their um, business was in, uh, in the 18th century, was in insuring um, in the slave trade. And this is, I mean, partly the, the uh, East India Company, which you uh, could look at as a major source of, in, in, of uh, a stimulus to the insurance industry, potentially. Um, the, the company covered its own insurance uh, liabilities at that time um, uh, in uh, you know, groups of merchants uh, acting to indemnify e e each other. So that the insurance system worked differently in the Asian trades. So it's largely with the Atlantic trade that marine insurance develops. And it developed to such a point that by the end of the 18th century and into the early 19th century, uh, London-based, uh, in particular, uh, insurance companies are not only insuring a, a, a very large proportion of the marine insurance of the Brit under the British flag, but they're also insuring um, ships uh, under other European uh, flags. Um, so Britain is becoming a centre inter for international insurance uh, business and brokerage. Um, so those those particular elements of private finance um, were very important, but perhaps more important still was the way in which um, the complexity of, of the slave trade encouraged um, uh multiplex payment systems to develop. I mean, to trade on three continents from Europe to Af uh, with goods to exchange on the African coast for slaves, to take the, the enslaved people then over to uh, the colonies and then uh, bringing back, not always in the same ships or with the same traders, um, colonial groceries and products of various kinds. 
This type of long-distance multilateral trading involved payment systems that were very complicated and that involved large periods of credit extension. And um, an old established form of dealing with this from the early expansion of trade in the Mediterranean onwards, you know, centuries earlier, was the use of the Bill of Exchange. But the British use of the Bill of Exchange internationally in the 18th century that expanded as a result of the slave trade took it to uh, new levels of complexity uh, and also it, it um, eased this um, the security uh, and the um, ability of merchants to trade in these complex complex patterns. And bills of exchange, which are like paper IOUs, which can be then uh, redeemed for a specie in the home country, um, circulated in this way. Most of them, because Liverpool was the main slave trading port by this time, to lesser extent, uh, Glasgow and still hanging on London, uh, certainly, and uh, still hanging on uh, uh, Bristol trade. Um, these bills of exchange came back into the slave ports but the West India finance houses that underpinned this whole system of credit and bills of exchange was uh, based in London. Um, so the slave uh, trade bills of exchange had to be eventually redeemed via the London money market. And the institutions, banking institutions, provincial banks with their London correspondence, which emerged in the 18th century to serve this whole financial and credit system for trade, um, these institutions linked the provincial um, activities with the London money market where most of the money uh, uh, resided. Um, and uh, so uh, this oiled the wheels of um, commerce, uh, the finance of industry, the exchange of um, uh, uh, bills for manufactured goods for the next slave trade voyage, for example, uh, were made in, 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 in slave bills. So, for example, if a, a slave trader in Liverpool was wanting to buy manufactured goods from the Midlands um, to take across the Atlantic or to, in fact, to take to Africa to exchange for slaves before the end of the 18th century, um, they would probably pay, and there's evidence for this, largely with uh, bills of exchange. And in fact, the whole credit system of the Northwest, partly because bills of exchange were pioneered in overseas trade, came to be based, even in the internal trade, on bills of exchange before the 1830s and 40s when the banking system took off and started to issue notes outside London uh, in a big way. Before that, the whole paper currency thing depended on this pyramid of, pyramid of credit that was created by... As, uh, by bills. Um, so that's another way in which private credit benefited from uh, the slave trade. Now, if we turn to public finance, um, I'll just isolate two two things really. There, uh, the national debt because because of because partly because um, the British state had to or chose to was lobbied to by merchants. Um, support with the Royal Navy, the uh, Atlantic traders, um, 
and also to act in a bellicose way against trading rivals during this era that's often termed the mercantilist era of trade wars in the 18th century, the wars with the French and the Dutch in particular over their Caribbean colonies, uh, were a feature of various periods of the 18th century, and all these wars had to be paid for. Um, and so the national debt increased massively in the 18th century. How was this financed? How was this financed, this large amount of money that was required to militarily support and endorse, not just with the Royal Navy, but also with mil uh, military forces stationed in the colonies to help with the uh, uh, fight against slave rebellions, which are often ignore, ignored in the historiography, but shouldn't be as a force making for the uh, uh, eventual ending of slavery. Um, how was this uh, uh, money raised? Well, first of all, of course, it came from taxation. Um, and if you look at the uh, excise and customs duties uh, that um, provided a part of this a large part of this taxation in the era before income tax, effective income taxes, um, the the fiscal capacity, uh, in other words, the uh, the capacity of the mercantile classes paying these taxes on imports and exports um, to uh, uh, to provide a tax base for the state uh, was increased by the extent of um, Atlantic and Caribbean trading. So the fiscal capacity was boosted by uh, not just the slave trade, but also the many other trades that were based upon the slave trade, which didn't exist in isolation, as we've tried to argue which was underpinning the wider trade with Asia and in manufactured goods uh, traveling from um, Britain to uh, across the Atlantic. So fiscal capacity was increased. Um, but also uh, many of the experiments of the early 18th century, such as the flotation of the South Sea Company, um, many of the experiments to extend uh, public finance um, depended on the attractiveness that investors saw in investing in the, the trading enslaved people. Uh, the, 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 um, the brokers uh, promoted the national debt and stopped trading in, in consuls and uh, 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 national paper credits, paper credits underpinned by the state, um, these, these were particularly attracted by the vast profits to be gained potentially, if not really, uh, for everyone, uh, in trading in enslaved people. So there's a close connection, I would argue, particularly between the, um, the crisis of the South Sea bubble and the reorganization of the national debt uh, in the 1720s and 30s. Um, and finally... Uh, Atlantic commerce, uh, commerce with the West Indian islands, um, was amongst the most profitable area of commerce in, and investment for the 18th century British economy, but it was also amongst the most unstable. Um, it, was, it was a large part of overseas trade, and it was, uh, as the century uh, developed, and particularly following the um, American independence, this was a, a trade of great fluctuations in fortunes. Um, 
Now, those two things together meant that any period of crisis in the trade, as were developing acute crises in the 1790s and the early uh, 18th century, um, threatened the whole system, threatened the whole British economic system. And um, the Bank of England, which had been developed at the end of the 17th century, uh, but which acted in a private capacity largely for most of the 18th, by the end of the 18th century, the instability of uh, Atlantic trade, particularly trade in the Caribbean, was such as to encourage the Bank of England to enter into its first, as it were, forays of um, activity as a central bank almost by lending to um, groups of West Indian merchants who had become too big to fail. That the impact of the, 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 their failure would have destabilized a large part of the economy. So the Bank of England steps in and lends groups, starts to step in, starts to lend groups of West Indian traders um, for temporary periods, the wherewithal to maintain um, confidence in their in their trading. And so this is a, this is a major step forward, if you like, in uh, the nature of public finance. Um, which is forced upon the bank by this trading instability and credit instability, which we talked about the credit pyramid, the instability of that credit pyramid. That's quite a number of reasons um, for this to have such an impact. And of course, very much um, confirms what you said initially, that someone could write a whole book just on this one piece. So thank you for giving us such a... Um, a clear and comprehensive understanding of it. And I hope that someone will write a whole book about this um, off the back of this research. Maxine, maybe you could help us understand kind of in some senses how all these pieces come together. Um, in the early on in the book, I believe, you have a sentence talking about how slavery was formative in the timing and the nature of Britain's Industrial Revolution. And in both of your answers so far, we've heard about many of those components of the impact of one on the other. Um, perhaps now we're in a position, Maxine, where you could tell us a bit about this timing and nature question. Okay. Well, I um, when I approached slavery before I started working on this, this book, uh, like many others, I associated it with cotton, with the cotton textile industry, and had thought relatively little about sugar. And I think the key point, one of the key, po key points we wish to make in this book is that there is a much earlier process, uh, period and process of um, the impact of the sugar economy on Britain and pushing into the, the being very, very important in the early stages of industrialization. And indeed, as we then discovered, continuing into later stages in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. But um, sugar becomes the the focus of the Atlantic trades, which are so fundamental to Britain, 
in the later 17th century and through the 18th centuries, um, sugar is fundamental to that great uh, shift in consumption and consumer culture that we see right through the 18th century. Um, And it's fundamental in the whole expansion of that slave trade that um, the the whole thing is based in initially in these sugar plantations. It's fundamental to that economic history of Britain. It is not just an American problem. And um, so I think that one of the really um, important aspects is the formative connection of the these West Indian colonies, uh, Caribbean colonies, the formative connection of those to Britain, and the way they are um, those plantations are developed, the um, enormous trade in sugar, and then all the aspects that grow on this, the development of the shipping industry, the development of the financial services, which Pat has expanded on um, so extensively and um, eloquently. Um, It's absolutely central. And we also see it really as as a significant part, that sugar economy, um, a, a significant part of the story of innovation, of the story of heavily capitalized um, industries such as sugar refineries central in many of our cities uh, from an early period of the, from early in the 18th century um, onwards. So I think that sugar, the story of sugar is key here. Um, The, as Pat emphasized in the earlier um, discussion of the Lancashire and Yorkshire coal fields, um, it's also the West Indies and also and Brazil with it that is these are the 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 areas that um, develop that special kind of cotton, the Barbadensa long staple cotton that is used in that first textile, um, industrial industrialization, uh, the American sources of cotton only come on stream in a major way in the early 19th century. So that 18th century, that key place of the industrial revolution, um, a key, the, the key period, um, from the 1760s into the beginnings of the 19th century, when we get that um, that great ex, um, expansion, is one that is closely based in those um, Caribbean colonies. So I think that that's one really important um, area that we want to emphasize um, in this book. Um, There's been a great deal of discussion in recent years of the new history of capitalism 
but that has been an American story, largely an American story, largely based in the history of cotton textiles. So here we have a different um, trajectory for Britain. Um, now, the other key um, aspect that that has been brought out in in Pat's um, discussion of the financial sector is the way that this um, this type of ind industrialization became closely connected with the development of the shipping and services sectors of the economy and the financial services um, sector. And this is something that became central to the British economy, not as an afterstage of industrialization, but there from the start, integral to the, the form that British industrialization took. And so this service sector economy, this financial services-based based economy um, is central right the way through British industrialization and is built up even more so during the period, the classic period of, um, of empire, of imperial expansion in the 19th century. Um, so I think that those are the two key points I would see um, uh, as really significant in the the close um, that that close frame um, connection of Britain's economic growth and industrialization over this period and its integration with those Caribbean colonies um, producing sugar with enslaved labor on large-scale plantations. So I'll just stop there. Incredibly helpful. Thank you. Pat, is there anything you'd like to add before we move on? Uh, nothing, no. Not, not. No, it's a fabulous answer. Um, I wonder if, Pat, maybe you could tell us a little bit about something we've discussed a little bit, but kind of off the back of Maxine's last answer, and um, perhaps can talk about a little bit more comprehensively, which is, of course, that Britain is not the only European country um, involved in slave trades. Britain's not the only European country that has empires going on. Um, and yet Britain is able to gain disproportionately from all of this um, in terms of economic benefit, even compared to its European competitors. Why is this? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, this is something that rather annoys me in the literature sometimes, that um, uh, the the role of uh, slavery in, in the development of the, Britain's economy um, is often dismissed with the with the remark that um, you know how you know that that why didn't French uh, the the French economy um, develop the first industrial nation or or the Dutch or the part indeed the Portuguese earlier or or the Spanish you know what 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 um, you know if it's just a question of slavery uh, you know it can't be just a question of slavery and of course it isn't just a question of slavery. However, um, what's often missing from this sort of dismissal of the importance of slavery is a sense of the timing of involvement of um, a nation, a national economy with both the slave trade and the development of profit-rendering 
plantation agriculture. So um, Britain is heavily involved in the slave trade and in plantations um, from the mid-18th century onwards. So the timing is different than in the case of uh, the Portuguese Empire, for example. Um, I would also emphasise that um, the success of uh, the Royal Navy and the policy of protectionism executed by the Navigation Acts, the protectionism on trade and the mono monopolising of trade uh, in British ships, and the trade in, in, in sugar in particular that monopolises the domestic market for British traders, uh, is a very, very important factor that enters into the debate about the profitability of slavery for the British economy compared with other countries. However, it's very easy to exaggerate the extent to which Britain gained more uh, from slavery than, for example, France. Indeed, uh, a strong argument can be made that, Britain, that France had the most uh, fertile, prosperous and profitable uh, sugar colonies in the Caribbean through the 18th century. Um, and uh, although it may not have, um, it, it may be left behind somewhat in terms of the um, of its primacy in the slave trade itself, certainly in terms of the profitability of its uh, sugar and um, West Indian colonial estates, it was in the ascendant, uh, not just rivaling Britain, but also exceeding probably the profitability of the British colonies uh, in parts of the 18th century. However, there is a, a major uh, sort of, um, if you like, uh, historical factor here um, that we'll have to factor in in the French case because um, the, of the intervention of the French Revolution and the French uh, Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wars, um, which, which um, were accompanied by, and not uh, uh, accidentally so, the loss of its main sugar island uh, colony in Saint-Domingue. And the failure to retake Saint-Domingue in the 1790s really knocks France out at that crucial period uh, uh, from being uh, a rival to Britain in terms of the importance of cornering the uh, colonial, uh, the West Indian mar uh, market and the colonial uh, commodities from the Caribbean. Um, similarly, the Dutch had rivaled uh, the, um, the British traders in the earlier part of the 18th century in terms not only of the slave trade itself, but also in the profitability of uh, plantations. But the Dutch experienced uh, financial crises in the 1770s from which it independently uh, did not, uh, certainly the slave trade never recovered. Um, and the Dutch, remember, that sometimes it's easy to think of the, um, the boundaries of various capital markets being nation states. But in the 18th century, the capital market is much more international than you might imagine. Um, and Dutch finance uh, partly underpinned the success of um, British trade in the Caribbean and British investment in the later 18th century, and particularly after the 1770s, when Dutch investors decided that uh, their profits would be safer investing through British firms and British institutions in the later 18th, 18th century. Um, and I think what we, what we try and discuss in looking at this issue of 
Britain gaining disproportionately, particularly when when it came to the development of the textile sector. Um, we we emphasised three things in particular. Uh, first of all, that Britain had a major European East India Company, along with the the French and the Dutch, it was one of the three biggest East India trading companies. And remember, as we emphasised earlier in this discussion, the key to unlocking the market for enslaved people on the West African coast was to supply goods that were often uh, imported from Asia, and in particular brightly coloured textiles, to the West African coast as a trading uh, an exchange mechanism, which the East India Company trade allowed uh, to happen, uh, you know, by, by its importation of such goods. Um, Wonderful. Thank you. And for coordinated the slave trade at a crucial time, as I've said, uh, unlike the French and the Dutch, and this is another key point, um, Britain developed uniquely prosperous and populous, well-populated colonies in uh, the Atlantic, in particularly in North America, um, which became major markets even after American independence. And it's the the dynamic created before American independence by um, the North American colonies trading with the Caribbean, trading stores and supplies, timber, foodstuffs to the Caribbean, a, near, a relatively nearby source of uh, a food enabled Britain's Caribbean colonies to specialize in the cash crops for export, uh, but also gave the North American colonists the purchasing power to buy British manufactured goods. And this set up a pattern of the preference for British manufactured goods, even after American uh, independence, amongst this highly uh, populated, more than half a million population uh, by the later 18th century in in um, and prosperous settler populations of North America. Um, I th think that's probably all I need to say about what <laughs> Britain has done in terms of its uh, benefit, the benefits it re reaped, not just from uh, the slave trade itself, but also from the profitability of its plantation economy. On a similar note, um, I'm wondering if you can help us understand uh, kind of as you've just done, kind of a compare and contrast, I suppose. But instead of between Britain and European states like the Dutch or the Spanish, um, between the between what happened in Britain and the US? Um, well, yeah, I, I think one of the problems with the way in which um, the relationship between slavery and the British economy, and Maxine has more than hinted at this already, one of the problems of the way in which that has entered historical consciousness in the past and popular consciousness is via this idea that it was slave the slave plantation states of the American South after independence uh, that contributed largely to British industrialization. Of course, it was important, but uh, at that stage, it was building upon the dynamic that had already been created by the importation of Caribbean cotton uh, produced by Britain's own enslaved workers. Um, and, you know, that, that part of the story has been underplayed vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the importation of cotton um, grown by uh, enslaved people who were not enslaved by Britain itself, but by 
uh, uh, you know, or, or not not worked by them. Maybe uh, is a better phrase. Um, and and but in in the historiography of the United States, of course, slavery continues. Slave plantation states continue until they continue to reap profits and create, you know. Um, a highly visible dual society through to the American Civil War period, uh, in plain sight. Uh, so the his so the way in which slavery has been integrated into the historiography of the United States is inevitably completely different, um, because it's happening on the spot there in the same country, and 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 is you know perceived totally differently. In a way, British historians and indeed the popular imagination of the British people has enabled slavery to be sidelined, partly because British uh, enslaved workers and the slave trade, you know, was was concerned, you know, with colonies so far away and, and out relatively out of sight. Um, so in the American system, especially if we're looking at the drug society and race-based capitalism in particular, it's all just so much more obvious. Um, but only and and has to be you know taken into account as a fundamental underpinning of the whole economic system of the United States for two cent you know two centuries well for a century and more following. Uh, Can we just do a wall here? Yes. Um. Uh, that phrase. Um. In the same country, I think it's uh very telling that um, there's this imagination that we have now that slavery in the West Indies was somehow happening somewhere else. It was not happening in Britain. But in the 18th century, it was these colonies, these West Indian colonies were perceived to be part of the wider Britain. And we have, over the period since, separated off that, um, that, that whole area so that it's been possible for us to think, for the you know, inhabitants of, of mainland Britain, to think that slavery has not been their problem. It's something that happened in the Amer in in America. Well, what is it? What is America? Well, look, we have to look at that um, that period of the 18th century and see the significance of those Atlantic econ those Atlantic colonies, those northern Atlantic colonies to Britain at the time, but also that close integration of the West Indian, the Caribbean colonies. Um, to Britain itself. We have lived for so long with this imagination that slavery happened somewhere else. So, yeah. Yeah, agreed. And I think that that is the defining difference in terms of understanding the, Ameri the differences between the, the US and the British historiographies uh, on, on the issue of slavery, certainly. And I think a really important point perhaps to kind of conclude with. Um, so thank you both for 
that, if I may, um, and finish with really my final question, which is this is a masterful book. Um, I think anyone listening to this is going to be fascinated to go read it and get all these details and shocked that somehow you've communicated all of this and it's not like a thousand page book. It's incredibly readable and clear um, as your answers have been here. Obviously, one very legitimate answer to my next question is, no, we're done now. It's time to sleep and rest and enjoy the rest of our lives. But on the off chance that there might be a different answer, um, is there anything you each might be working on, whether or not it's together, whether or not it's a book? Um, now that this book is available for people that you'd like to give us a bit of a preview of? Well, shall I start? Um, I think we're probably going in some different directions in future. Um, That's my impression. Uh, I have curiosities that I want to explore. I do want to know a great deal more about the sugar trade and sugar production and consumption and to explore this across Europe uh, because there's very different consumption patterns, very different ways of consuming sugar um, in the different parts of Europe. And I became fascinated too with sugar refining and the sugar refineries uh, spread over many um not just uh, many European cities as well as uh, British towns and cities. And I want to discover more about those. Uh, There has not, in my impression, been a huge amount of of work on this. So I think I'm going to have a lot of research to do. So that's a direction that I will be taking. Intriguing. Pat, what about you? Uh, Well, I had already started a a new history of the Welsh woolen industry, which might might, uh, sound uh, rather a traditional topic. I live in Wales. Um, This is an industry that is, um, you know, in in the long-term sense, singularly unsuccessful commercially, uh, but nevertheless absolutely fascinating. And I, I'm approaching this in uh, the last major book on the on the industry was uh, published in the 1960s, and uh, so the industry is crying out for a new uh, look. Um, and what I'm trying to do is to combine uh, an economic history and business history approach um, with an approach that takes in wealth culture, uh, the wider environment the nature of the artifacts produced um, and their markets and consumer attitudes to the goods uh, that were produced. And as a as a, a little side issue and in connection with slavery, it was the case in the 18th century uh, that uh, the Welsh uh, woolen industry, like most other industries in the UK, developed a connection with the markets uh, for cloths across the Atlantic. And in the case of Wales, um, for uh, several decades, uh, and much preferred by plantation owners, um, Welsh manufacturers concentrated on the production of what were called Welsh planes. These were undyed, fairly low quality, but very hard wearing um, uh, woolen cloths that were exported, particularly uh, for use by enslaved people. Uh, plantation owners bought them. Apparently, they were preferred to 
textiles from other areas, um, woolen ones anyway, main slave clothing was, was linen, but I'm going to talking here about Welsh plain woolens, that they were pre pre preferred in many of the southern states right through uh, into the mid-19th century. And they were certainly, they certainly underpinned an important branch of Welsh textiles through most of the 18th century as well. Wow. Well, those both sound like absolutely fascinating projects. Best of luck with them. If they become books, perhaps we'll have to have you back. Uh, but of course, in the meantime, listeners can read the book we've been discussing. I really cannot overstate just how important and impactful this book is, titled Slavery, Capitalism and the Industrial Revolution, just published. Maxine and Pat, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.